the social and emotional homegrown hangover is a very real thing it's a very real thing must be even worse for you because you're an introvert like at least i got the extrovert thing working for me i can't even imagine how you feel right now <laughs> Welcome to the 16th episode of Left of Skeptic. My name is Brittany Lind. I am Kayla Moria. And we are a paranormal podcast. Hi. Hi. Kayla. Hi. 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 How are you holding up? I'm hi. I'm I'm tired but good. Same. Same <laughs> for sure. Uh, so we just got done with the Duluth Homegrown Music Festival, which was uh, a lot more people than we would normally see. Luckily, the people we hung out with were all vaccinated or masked or all of that stuff. It was safe. Um, but, wow, when you go, like, a year without seeing anyone and then you come across a bunch of people in a whole week, it's exhausting. My goodness. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Plus, my legs are tired. So much standing. No, not the standing. I played my first ever homegrown <laughs> kickball game. Oh, and you did so good. <laughs> I whined every second of the way. I know. I know. I would have too. And I, I whined to the point where they didn't make me do it. So I, that was good. Every time Heiko said my name that I was up to kick, I was like, motherfucking shit. This, this is bull. I didn't want to do this. And then Heiko keeps trying to pull me aside and like pep talk me. You're like, no, just you listen. Can do this. Close you can your do eyes. This. Relax. You just got to kick the ball. You're fine. And I'm like, meh. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want sports. I'm not a sports person. I normally sit no. there with my tuba. If I had had my tuba there, no mm -hmm. one would have bugged me about playing. This is what you get for not bringing Buffy wherever you go. I know, right? I gotta learn. <sighs> so, uh, homegrown weekend aside, we've got, I mean, that's pretty much all we did all week. It's true. Yep. You know? Yeah, I mean, I did work, but other than that, it was just trying to do homegrown preparing for homegrown making sure posts were up doing all that jazz it was very yeah it was it was a good week yep exhausting but good and i i mean i worked too um it's nice to know that this very stressful week of stuff is behind us mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. now we've got a bunch of stuff to look forward to this summer like the the para unity convention is coming up in a couple months that'll be cool that will be cool. Also, a very busy week for me. Oh yes, because of my other job. But it'll be it'll be good. That's how I'll celebrate my busy week. Is I'll celebrate by going to a para unity convention. My sister is going to be in town that week because it's the weekend after her birthday. Oh, nice! And it's also the first time that she's coming to town for her fiance to fix some of our windows because he can replace windows and doors so Candy he's agreed skill. to do that for us mm -hmm. which is awesome but it does mean i was like sarah i I've got, I've got plans she's like well no it's cool we'll go she's gonna have the twins with her there's no age limit for the convention i looked so we are going to haul the twins around in that coffin uh wagon for my wedding <laughs> oh wow oh please wait are 
What is the gender of the twins? Male and female. You should dress them up like the twins from The Shining, but just find like a, a little suit. That's a really cute idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that a mm-hmm. lot. I was thinking more like, uh, well, I suppose we could do it without the wigs. We'll just find something that matches. I was just trying to think of things that wouldn't involve Zayden wearing a wig because there's no way he's going to tolerate that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if, if you just got like little matching outfits, I think people would get and just make sure they hold hands. Yep. And then teach them how to stand there creepily. Oh, yeah. No, that's with us. they can be creepy. Trust Good. me. Of I've course, seen it. Of course they can. <laughs> they are my niece and nephew, so. Oh. oh, I have a story to tell you. Okay. About something that happened during this week. Well, I'm ready for it. So Steve and I got home from, it must have been Earthrider, one of the homegrown shows. We walk in, and all of a sudden he, like, stops by the staircase that leads up to the attic. Evie's standing next to him, and they both look up the stairs. And I look at them, and I'm like, what's, uh, what's going on here? And he goes, did you hear that? And I was like, hear what? And he's like, there was a really loud, really loud noises coming from upstairs. And it's not the cat, because she's right here. And I was like, oh. Oh. Okay. Hmm. So then, like, I walk away from him, and he's like, where are you going? And I go into my room, and I grab my bat. And then I go out and I grab, like, the little fire poker, like, the beer poker thing that's just, like, a metal stick. <laughs> I hold on to the bat. I give him that. And I'm like, we're going to go see what's up there. And he goes, you think this is going to, like, help? And I was like, well, I mean, not for ghosts. <laughs> well, it's iron, so maybe it'll help for ghosts what you have. But I was like, I don't know. Maybe there's someone up there. You don't ever know. You know about the Spider-Man from Colorado. Like, people could be up there. Mm-hmm. And then I was just like marched up the stairs with my bat and i looked all around and i was like okay there's no one up here and he goes that doesn't make me feel any better and I was like, <laughs> <laughs> no probably not but there's no person so that's good yep you know they're going for the slow burn the paranormal activity that's what they're going for up there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah poor steve is like i've been listening to your podcast all your computers are haunted and all the house is haunted and i don't know why i'm here now all your friend is haunted I mean, yeah, Alice got Alice going on. What? <laughs> I'm I'm loving it, loving every second of do? it. What did we do? <laughs> too much. We did too much, as always. <laughs> well, I've got a story for you if you're feeling it. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready to see what you picked because when we were messaging each other about this week's story, it seemed like we were really narrowing it down to the same story Mm -hmm. based upon the information that we gave each other and uh i just went complete opposite direction different state but i'm curious to hear what you eventually picked so also just so our listeners know we were both so busy with homegrown last week (laughs) that we were talking yesterday and i asked her like okay well what do you got for this week and she goes, I don't know. And, and she's like, what do you got? I was like, I don't know. I guess we'll figure it out. <laughs> so, yeah, we did all of our research today. <laughs> this is possibly our least prepped episode. By but I far still, the least prepped episode. <laughs> I still think I came up with a pretty good story here. So time will tell when we rate it on a scale of error to normal later. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So today I'm going to be talking about the Drake Hotel. 
this is one of the ones I was looking at. I'm so glad we talked to each other about it. (laughs) The Drake Hotel can be found at 140 East Walton Place in Chicago, Illinois. While it is not one of the most notably haunted hotels in Chicago, it is a host to two very popular otherworldly women with tragic histories. So that's what made it really intriguing to me. It's known to be this beautiful old building. It's got this gorgeous view of Lake Michigan. It's right in the center of everything. It's very well known, even without the haunting stuff. Like, this is the place to be. So I've got some of the history here. The Drake was conceptualized by architect Benjamin Howard Marshall and financed by John B. Drake and Tracy Corey Drake in 1919. The doors of the Drake Hotel opened on New Year's Eve the following year to 2,000 of Chicago's most distinguished citizens. Whoa. Throughout the Roaring Twenties, the Drake became high society's first choice in luxury. The Fountain Court, now known as the Palm Court, hosted Chicago's social elite daily for tea. The popularity continued to rise well into the 1930s, seemingly unaffected by the crash of 1929. Icons such as Bing Crosby, Walt Disney, George Gershwin, and Charles Lindbergh could be seen sipping a cocktail and listening to Herbie Kay in the Gold Coast Room. That is the place to be. Yeah, that is a hoppin' joint. Hoppin' indeed. In 1932, the Cape Cod Room became the nation's first theme restaurant, featuring a menu of fresh fish and seafood. So the theme was Cape Cod. I mean, seafood. Oh, that makes sense. You know, it's. <laughs> I was like, what's the theme? Oh, Cape Cod. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> it's no like rock and roll themed beautifulness, but, you know, fish, seafood works. 20 years later, seen laughing over drinks, newlyweds Marilyn Monroe and Joe DiMaggio would carve their iconic initials into the bar's wooden countertop. What? In the 1940s, it became a local hangout for reporters, politicians, and as quoted in the hotel's history website, even some notorious characters, though it never lost the true Chicago crowd. I mean, from what I understand, and from what I've read about Chicago's history, the notorious characters are very likely part of the true Chicago crowd back then. Right. But I think That's that was their was way thinking. of trying to, like, brush that off. We don't talk about that, but we'll, <laughs> we'll mention it, but we don't talk about that. <laughs> the 40s proved to be a decade of massive change. The Palm Court changed seasonally to accommodate the changing palette of the patrons. And in the winter, to set holiday tone, the fountain was replaced with a 2,000-pound fireplace. What? That seems excessive to renovate so much during the winter, but okay. And then in the summer, to get the cool lake breeze, the ceiling was opened and the fountain was filled with fresh water. They opened the ceiling? Mm Mm-hmm. How? Okay. Throughout the 50s and 60s, the political and social climate of Chicago was changing. The Drake was inclined to change along with it, so updates were made to accommodate the rapidly expanding and evolving city around it. And along the way, some of the building's shine was lost a little bit. In 1980, the Hilton International acquired the Drake Hotel and restored it to its former glory. So this is now a Hilton Hotel. Okay. The Drake Hotel today provides the grandeur of the past and accommodations fitting for today's high society. Though the Drake has progressed both architecturally and technology, the roots of the Drake Hotel run deep beneath the Lakeshore Drive into real Chicago. So a lot of what I just shared with you is pulled right from the hotel's historical site. That makes sense. Yeah. So... I edited the wording a little bit because they got a little bit verbose. They're obviously trying to appeal to some very high society people. They Mm -hmm. want to appeal to those who adore history and want to be a part of history while making it luxurious and still like have all the accommodations that 
fancy people want. All the new new fancy things that fancy people want, plus all of the history that everyone's like, oh my god, Marilyn Monroe sat here. <laughs> and I mean, it's fancy. Uh, have you seen Risky Business? I don't know if I've ever seen it in its entirety. Okay. Uh, those super fancy scenes from the movie, those were actually filmed at the Drake, I guess. Oh, nice. It is a movie that I do need to go back and watch because I reference it enough that I should actually watch the whole movie and not just... Is it because you slide around on your socks? Is it because you slide around on your socks and sing into a hairbrush or something? (laughs) Just telling all your secrets to the world. Secrets. Secrets. (laughs) Well, I wonder if this high society crowd they're appealing to know about the haunted history of the location that they visit for fine dining, tea, beautiful resting, fancy parties, because there's a little bit of history here. Well, I'm excited to hear what it is. The most popular story in the hotel's history is about the woman in red. It dates all the way back to the opening of the hotel. That fancy party on New Year's Eve of 1920. Mm-hmm. With the 2,000 people. Mm-hmm. That party that hosted a lot of Chicago's social elite. Legend has it that a woman attending the party caught her husband or fiancé, it's a little unclear, cheating on her at the party and threw herself from one of the windows on the 10th floor as a result. Whoa. Starting off with a bang, because that was their grand opening, wasn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. She -hmm. now haunts that very floor. Now, if this suicide truly happens, it doesn't seem to have made the papers. Adam Selzer, who is a tour guide, author, historian that works primarily out of Chicago and New York, uh, he's been interviewed for Travel Channel and the History Channel before. He wrote of this incident in an article for MysteriousChicago.com. And he said that he couldn't find any valid information to back up the story for sure. There was a story of a former model who jumped from a 10th floor window, but she was an older woman, the kind that papers back then described as once beautiful, air quote. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And it was decades after the hotel opened, not one of the first parties. That story was. But there is a chance that the suicide wouldn't have been reported in 1920. Like, if she fell onto the sidewalk, there was no way it would have gotten missed. But if she had jumped from a place where she would have landed on a roof or another one of the roofs or something. Oh, yeah. Basically, the hotel was presenting itself as one of the finest in the world. And the owners probably would have gone to great lengths to keep the suicide on the down low. That's what I was thinking. They'd have the money to be able to cover it up. Yep. If she had landed on the roof or the setback, they could have possibly had the body removed without any reporters finding out about it. And, you know, greased Mm. some palms, paid off the right people so that it didn't show up. Classic Chicago. Today, the guests at the Drake have reported seeing the woman in red wandering the Gold Coast room, the Palm Court, and mostly the 10th floor. There's a lot of stories about the woman in red, but nothing concrete. Just a lot of, I've seen her here, she was walking here. Bright red dress, beautiful woman. Nothing too detailed and no reports of violence or maliciousness in any way. Then I found this one story from Vice, which I love Vice. Clancy Martin visited the hotel with his wife, Amy. They both had a lot of experiences with ghosts in the past. And in February of 2014, they visited the Drake during one of the worst winters in the Midwest. I don't know if you remember the 2014 winter, but that one sucked. Was that when we had the Thunder Blizzard? I believe so. Either way, I remember it. I remember that as being the year it got way, way, way colder even than normal. Oh, yes. 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 Mm-hmm. They got to the hotel, 
realize they forgot their Ouija board, and I'm just gonna literally read the rest of the article directly from here because there's no way to do it justice otherwise. So we're okay. reading this from Clancy's point of view. After they discover that they didn't have the Ouija board, we can make one, Amy said. I've heard it's more powerful that way. They have a cardboard box in my red folders and we can just make one. I categorically refuse this rash and dangerous idea of pure lunacy until Amy said, well, then we'll just have to go out and find one. Mm -hmm. I'm Canadian, so I don't mind sub-zero temperatures, but we'd already been driving for 10 hours, and the absolute last thing I wanted to do was poke around the board game aisle of Walmart looking for what some people consider to be a portal to hell. Okay, make one, I told Amy. When I said it felt like I was in one of those Japanese teenagers in the ring when they decided to play that mysterious video, I'm not lying. That's what it felt like. Once we were settled in our room, Amy got to work. She scrawled the alphabet on a plastic folder and using the hotel key card in lieu of a planchette, asked the Ouija board if she could speak to the woman in red, perhaps the most famous of the hotel's resident ghost. Amy's makeshift Ouija board offered no reply. She asked if the woman in red was present. Again, no reply. Then she turned to me. Are you going to help me with this? All that thing is going to do is magnetize any ghost around here and none of them are going to answer you, I said. Is Clancy grumpy? She asked the Ouija board, purposely moving the <laughs> hotel key card across the letters to spell out yes. Afterward, she took the Ouija board out into the hall and left it by the ice machine. That night, I tried a trick I had learned in Iowa City. In the past, I've only seen ghosts when I wasn't looking for them. I think this is one of the truths about ghosts. They're like lost things. When you're looking for something that's been lost or misplaced, you never find it. It's only when you give up or after your attention has been diverted somewhere else that you find what you were looking for. I learned this the hard way in Iowa City. If you were in the vicinity of a bad ghost, ones that can hurt your soul, sitting perfectly still in total silence will most likely result in a confrontation. Later, Amy and I visited the Palm Courtroom where the woman in red saw her fiance seducing another woman on Drake's opening night. And it must have been a grand roaring party, something out of the Great Gatsby, combined with the opulent menace exuded by the party room from Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining. Giant, shimmering chandeliers hung from the roof of the enormous ballroom. Amy and I could only easily imagine the scene that night that she jumped off the roof. Everyone trying a bit too hard to have fun, to be glamorous, to feel pretty. This place is perfect, I said. This place has more ghosts than human. Where, she asked, do you see some? She was excited. <laughs> I was joking, but it does feel weird, doesn't it? That night, before we went to bed, I sat on the floor and waited. Nothing. I waited some more. Nope. Then a bit longer. Spoopy. Spooky, not spoopy. Sorry. <laughs> Habit. You can leave that in if you want. I'm going to. <laughs> spooky vibes were not present in the slightest. I was starting to worry that maybe we were wrong about this place and maybe it was all hype. When I got to bed, Amy was already half asleep. I noticed that the door to our room was open just a crack. I t asked Amy about it. I put the bolt on it. I always do. You know that, she mumbled, semi-conscious and irritated. And that's true. She always does. Well, that may be something, I thought. I pulled the door open, looked around. It was empty and quiet, so I locked up and got under the covers. That night, I dreamt about the woman in red and her fiancé. They had been living in an apartment together. It had an ornately beautiful brass staircase that spiraled upwards. I was there for some reason, and the fiancé took me out to the terrace. The woman stayed inside. I suddenly realized that I had lived in the building before, that I had lived there many times over, 
yet it surprised me to think of myself there as a guest or resident. How have you been? The fiancé asked. He had the surly expression of a seagull, dumb in a hateful way. I told him I was fine. We still have your mother's coat, he continued. The woman in red called out from within. She corrected him, explaining that they'd sold the coat. Oh, that's okay, I said. She's just teasing you, he said. We have it. And that's why I woke up. I was terrified and overcome with jealousy. It's the same feeling I get when some young man sits next to my wife and ostensibly speaks to someone else in the room while pitching his tone to Amy. Waking up from the dream, I had the same feeling I do in those situations, the lonely feeling of wanting to die. My instinct was to flee immediately, to urgently get away. I woke my wife. I think she visited me in my dream, I said of the woman in red. I think we have to change hotels. She laughed and said, that doesn't count. <laughs> in the morning, when the room service came, I noticed the door was open a crack, even though I am absolutely certain I closed and locked it before going to bed. On our second day at the hotel, we wandered the halls somewhat aimlessly. I got the sense that we were being watched, but by whom I wasn't sure. That night, I told my wife we should go to bed early, and we slept well until three in the morning when I heard a loud banging. Again, I woke up my wife. What was that? I asked. You're dreaming, she said. I got up to check the door. It was closed. So then I decided to be brave, which isn't like me. I put on my clothes and went to the eighth floor. Some strange primal instinct told me something was wrong up there and I needed to find out what it was. Stepping off the elevator, I turned around suddenly because there's no other way to put it. I just knew. Seated on the love seat in the elevator was a woman in her 30s. She was wearing a red dress with cap sleeves. Her lips were tightly pursed and her bare arms were fully extended with her palms pressed against the elevator walls. Even as the elevator doors closed, she did not look at me. Instead, she was fixated on something above my head. Instinctually, I knew it was another ghost, but when I looked up, there was nothing. When I looked back at the woman in red, she was gone. I pressed the button, which inexplicably caused the doors to close and send the elevator up. My stomach turned. Without looking up above my head again, I walked as quickly as I could without running into the stairwell and down the two floors to our room. I woke Amy and told her the story. She muttered something and fell back asleep. I pulled the covers over my head in case whatever I'd seen in the hallway had decided to follow me into our room. The thing is, after all this time and so many sightings, I'm still very much afraid of ghosts. The morning we left early, I insisted on it. I bet Amy was so pissed. I don't do it. Like when she was awake and like he retold her the story, I bet she was like, why didn't you wake me up? And he was like, I did. And you just you muttered something and up. went back to bed. <laughs> Yeah, it's not super detailed in any other version, but this is... I don't like that the door keeps going open. And the fact that it was looking at something else. Yeah. Well, and the woman in red, as I had said, isn't the only female ghost identified by the color of her clothing that is said to haunt the Drake. There is also a woman in black. I thought for sure you were going to say white. It's an equally tragic tale. Oh, no, no, not white. Black. <laughs> it's an equally tragic tale... It's actually a documented tale, like with oh. news stories. But this is a weird one where the apparition isn't the one who was harmed. It's the one who harmed. Interesting. You've got me intrigued. Continue. Another article by Adam Seltzer tells this tale. In January of 1944, Mrs. Adele Bourne Williams, a 58-year-old society matron, walked up to her eighth-floor apartment at the Drake Hotel with her daughter and found their door unlocked. Inside, they found a gray-haired woman in a black coat 
hiding in the bathroom. Without a word, the woman pulled a pistol from her purse and fired two shots at William's daughter. She missed, but that did not stop her. She left the bathroom and fired several shots at Mrs. Williams, eventually hitting her in the head, causing a wound that would kill Adele Williams hours later. The fur-coated woman then walked out of the room and was seen by a couple of men before William's daughter cried for help. I could have tripped her, one of the men later said, but I'm not in the habit of tripping strange women. That's a quote for you. Okay, legit, I guess. I don't know. Thank you. Later reports said that her daughter chased the woman down the stairwell, yelling, stop that crazy woman. She shot my mother. Police launched a massive search of the hotel and found nothing. However, four hours later, the murder weapon was found shattered in a stairwell, apparently having been dropped from a high floor. Because it, it's an older pistol, so those weren't it as... It breaks apart. Yep. They're meant to come apart so you can clean them. Okay. Yep. I, in my brain, I thought shattered like glass, and I was like, what? And I was <laughs> like, no, be realistic about what a shattered pistol would look like, Brittany. Come on now. A spare key to William's room was reported missing from the front desk at the time of the murder, but mysteriously, it appeared back on the desk at 10 o'clock that evening. No jewelry or valuables were taken, leaving the motive unclear. Right. Just before the murder, a phone call had been placed from Mrs. Williams' room to a fish and ale house two blocks away, which Mrs. Williams and her daughter weren't there. Okay. Because they were coming back to the room. So whoever called was the person that was hiding out in that apartment. The mystery still remains unsolved. There was never a suspect, and though various motives were suspected, nothing really held up. And this woman in black is now said to be seen by guests and employees wandering the eighth floor. Interesting. It could be a case of mistaken identity. Adam, who wrote the article, seems to think so. Because it's not often that the murderer... You know, not the murderee is the one haunting the building. Usually the person killed is the one that haunts it. But the fact that they never found any information on the murderer, they never caught the murderer, and all these mysterious appearances and disappearances kept happening. Mm -hmm. And then you combine that with the fact that Clancy Martin's middle-of-the-night investigation led him to the eighth floor, not the the tenth floor, where he saw the woman in red looking at something else which he assumed would be another ghost well i just i uh, i thought it was pretty interesting i think that is interesting so either way two women with tragic backstories seem to be haunting one of the fanciest hotels in chicago so we should probably get all dapper and add this to our list to visit when we go to chicago definitely even if we just go get a drink at the bar Mm -hmm. like because we probably can't afford to stay there yeah whatever still fun (laughs) so that is the story of the drake hotel I liked it when I was doing research and I came across the Drake Hotel. All I really read was the very specific thing about the woman in red, and I didn't really go into details about it because I hadn't talked to you about it. Mm-hmm. And I was too short on time to waste my research on something I couldn't do. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, this was one of my half-fleshed-out stories that we had talked about. I had had a bunch mm-hmm. of information on the woman in red, and I knew about the woman in black, but I didn't mm-hmm. know enough. And I was like, well, I'll just use that time now and we'll get it out. So on a scale, para to normal, five being para, one being normal. Four. You're going to give it a four? We give it a four. I would have given it a three only because there's not enough information on the woman in red. (sighs) Look, yeah, I know, but I really liked that guy's story. Yeah, it was a really good story. Yeah. (laughs) 
I have a feeling you're not going to find mine that era. I might. You never know. We have varying different opinions on stories. It kind of, we kind of go in opposite directions sometimes, which is part of our dynamic. I know. <laughs> oh my gosh, y'all. I have to tell you about a story that happened on Saturday real quick. So I went to brunch for the very first time inside a restaurant. It's the first time I've been inside of a restaurant in over a year. But I had a small group of friends. There were four of us. And we were in Pizza Luce's bar, which is like a local pizza place. And they have fantastic brunch. And there was one couple across from us, like across the entire bar from us, also people I knew. And then all of a sudden, Kayla walks in. And I'm like, <laughs> Kayla, what? And But she's hanging out with her friend. And so I was like, I'll just leave her be. She's hanging out with her friends. I got my friends. And then... Out of nowhere, I said to my group quietly, oh, I have to remember to tell Kayla this. And then Kayla looks to me and goes, said, hey, fuckers, are you going to the kickball game? Yeah, it was so <laughs> weird because everyone at my table turned to look at her and they're like, did she hear you? I was like, did you just hear me? And you're like, no. And I was like, what? And I was like, oh, I literally just said, I have to remember to tell Kayla. And then you turned and said stuff to me and i was like all right me and here you we go here right we go, here right here. Me and you. <laughs> it's getting weird all right well i have a story for you now all right and since i couldn't do a hotel in chicago which was my original plan that's okay this episode would have been kind of lame if we both did chicago hotels <laughs> um i decided to go to indiana I am doing the Central State Hospital, formerly known as the Central Indiana Hospital for the Insane, which is a psychiatric treatment hospital in Indianapolis, Indiana. Nice. The hospital first opened its doors in November of 1848 with a total of five patients. At that time, the hospital consisted of one brick building on 160 acres of land just west of downtown Indianapolis. As with most psychiatric hospitals of the time, it didn't take long for one building with five patients to grow into a facility with several buildings. Eventually, per Wikipedia, the grounds would include uh, two massive castle-like buildings called the Seven Gables, one for male and one for female patients, a pathological department, a sick hospital for the treatment of physical ailments, a farm colony where patients engaged in occupational therapy, a chapel, an amusement hall complete with an auditorium, billiards and bowling alleys, a bakery, a firehouse, a cannery manned by patients, and idyllic gardens and fountains. That's something we've come upon in the past, like when we talked about Nopaming and stuff. A lot of these places where patients were kept for long-term care kind of turned into little communities of their own. Exactly. These, yep. They pretty much had it all. Though uh, most of these buildings... Um, were not actually put into place until 1940s, 1950s, which is almost like 100 years later. Mm -hmm. But either way, by 1928, the hospital housed nearly 2,500 patients. These patients were treated for a variety of diagnoses, including schizophrenia, depression, hysteria, alcoholism, senile dementia, and epilepsy. Alcoholism? Yeah, alcoholism. That actually was pretty common in a lot of these places. Oh, okay. And hysteria, you know, for those women who don't like their husbands i don't know <laughs> wasn't hysteria like women who were like wanted just wanted to get laid 
Hysteria counted for anything that women did that they thought was deviant. Oh, joy. It was just a, a blanket thing that they said that women were, and then they could throw you into a mental institution, and that's just how it was. And yet um, so many people call them the good old days. Right? Yeah, it was actually really common where, like, if uh, a husband wanted to divorce his wife but you couldn't, he could just be like, well, she's hysteric. She's oh, my God. hysteria. And then they, she would have to go to a mental institution. Yeah. Huh. Men are great. <laughs> Not unlike other psychiatric hospitals of the time, despite having some good intentions about treating a variety of mental illnesses, they often attempted to do so by using treatments that we today would consider barbaric, with the classics such as electroshock treatment, insulin treatment, which consisted of injecting insulin into the body, causing you to go into a coma until your body kind of like evens itself out with the blood sugar. I'd never heard of that one before, but apparently they did it. That's terrible. And I know, right? And of course the lobotomy. But in addition to these inhumane medical practices, they also had a horrible history of abuse and neglect. According to IN.gov, in 1870, the Central Indiana Hospital for the Insane Superintendent, Dr. Everts, was so appalled by the conditions in the basement or dungeons of the hospital, which is where the hospital held some of its worst criminally insane patients, he reported to the governor at the time, quote, the basement dungeons are dark, humid, and foul, unfit for life of any kind, filled with maniacs who raved and howled like tortured beasts, for want of light and air and food and ordinary human associations and habiliments. Which I looked up, it means clothing. I don't oh. know why he couldn't just say clothing, but habiliments is clothing. Fun okay. Fact. <laughs> and then he even said of the normal words that they were, quote, without adequate or intelligent provisions for light, heat or ventilations and patients were forced to sleep on beds of straw over metal rods Ugh. essentially yeah it wasn't great and because of insufficient funds there was rarely enough money to make any repairs to the hospital allowing for quote abundant leakages and rotting floors and the pantries and kitchen spaces were infested with cockroaches Ugh. Dr. Everts actually ended up resigning in 1872 because the conditions were so bad and he didn't feel like there was anything that he could do about them. And he basically just gave up hope. Which says something about what the patients must be feeling if yeah. the head doctor couldn't even handle the situation. However, after more information about the abuse that was occurring at the Central State Hospital came to the public's attention, in the 1880s and 90s, a group of community activists were successful in lobbying for more funding to improve the hospital's appearance. Nevertheless, due to the underpaid and undertrained staff, the abuse continued. Attendants were known to hit patients, lock them in closets, and restrain them in beds for long periods of time, and many would punish them if they even just spoke to each other. Wow. In 1896, the Central Indiana Hospital for the Insane created their pathological department to facilitate medical education and research on the physical causes of mental disease. And throughout the early to mid-1900s, other than the electroshock treatment and the lobotomies, uh, they did actually try to do different approaches to working with the patients, and this is when the occupational therapy and recreational areas of the hospital were created. So they increased... They improved things, but they still kept, you know, two of the most long-lasting, physically damaging things possible. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, they try to make it better. They're like, let's give them activities, but also let's take out pieces of their brain. Oh, joy. Something will work. I swear. We'll figure it out. <laughs> Shit will buff out. It'll be fine. But despite these changes to the patient's day-to-day -day activities, stories of the abuse suffered by the patients continued. In fact... 
During the last 15 or so years before the hospital closed, there was a string of patients who died under suspicious circumstances. One patient died of exposure due to a broken window. Mm. Another drowned in a bathtub. Mm. And yet another died from a medical overdose. Mm. After these instances and after a grand jury investigation, the hospital closed its doors in 1994. So it's unsurprising with a history like this that the Central State Hospital is not only known for its rocky past, but also for its hauntings. And this is where I'm not sure where you'll find a lot of the hauntings available. It's kind of like your story, except for yours has two very specific details, mm-hmm. whereas a lot of these are just general sounds that okay. you hear throughout the area. Some of the hotspots that you'll find on the hospital grounds are in the powerhouse, which is where, like, the electricity came from. So maintenance workers often hear the screaming of a woman coming from a corner in the basement and the shadows of entities that have been seen moving from post to post. <laughs> Again, women screaming. I don't like shadows. Corner. What happened? I don't like it. <laughs> one employee who was taking a nap in the basement near the pumping station, I don't know if that was the norm, said that he was once woken up by unseen hands choking him. He eventually broke free of the grasp and ran to the light switch, only to turn it on and see that no one was there. He later found deep red marks around his neck where the entity had him in its grasps. Mm -mm. And there are also stories of the coal conveyor belt, which is used to bring coal to the boiler, of turning itself on and off. Fun facts. The Pathology Building, which is now the Indiana Medical History Museum, is where the bodies of the deceased patients were examined to try and find a physical explanation for their mental illnesses. And recently, among other newly discovered burial grounds throughout the property, the remains of several past patients were found buried along the building, and people will often hear strange noises coming from the basements, often moans or screams or cries, which is what you hear all over the grounds. That makes me really sad. Yeah. Also, this is the only time where I have it in my notes about, like, the burial grounds. But over the last, I don't know, decade or so, they found more groups of people buried all over the grounds than the original cemetery that they were aware of. So, like, mass burial plots? Yeah. Or, like, like a cemetery but with no headstones. Oh, that's sad. That's super sad. So there actually isn't any information as to how many people would have died here. And it's sad that basically everywhere you go, you hear voices and crying and screaming. Mm. It's not great. Not great. Um, In one paranormal investigation, a team of three were investigating the administration building during a hot summer day. Quote, one of our first experiences there were trying to get these windows open when all of a sudden the three of us heard a voice say, pull down from the top. I asked everyone in the room who knew how to get the window open, and everyone said that they didn't know how to open the window, and they didn't say anything. Oh, pleasant. I watched a YouTube video, um, and in it, the person went to the administration building, and some of the EVP that they shared was just, it was just noise. I wouldn't consider that like an authentic EVP, but I think that when they were in the admin building, they had some actual like whispering sounds. So, although why the admin building? I don't know. It's interesting. There are about five miles of tunnels or catacombs that connect the buildings throughout the grounds. And one story goes that a patient named Alvin, who lived in one of the non-secure sections of the hospital, went missing one day. 
and neither the police nor the hospital workers could find him anywhere on or off the grounds, and it was just assumed that he made a successful break. Until, years later, another patient, a female patient, would often be seen sitting near the basement, talking. One day, a nurse asked her who she was talking to, and she responded that there was a boy named Alvin that she liked to sit and talk to. Shortly after this, another search was conducted, and Alvin's body was discovered in a crawl space near where she liked to sit and talk to him. Oh. And I've... I know this story. I didn't know that this story was associated with this hospital, but I've heard it before. I okay. thought I'd seen it on, I don't know, Ghost Adventures or BuzzFeed Unsolved, and I can't find anything about either of them going there, so I'm not sure why I know this story. But Well, think about how many it. of those shows we grew up watching through, like, so true. ABC Family or any of the channels we watched. I'm sure we saw it somewhere because that sounds kind of familiar to me, too. Right? Yeah, I couldn't find any legitimate show going there. Just a bunch of independent YouTubers going mm-hmm. there. Interesting. In the 1950s, a dirt room floor off one of the tunnels was discovered with chains and hand restraints hanging from the walls. Hospital workers in the tunnels would often describe hearing moanings coming from this room long after it had since been occupied. So they continued to use the underground tunnels for various reasons bringing bodies back and forth to the places where they're kept. Mm -hmm. It's Indiana. It gets cold during the winter, and every time they passed it, they would hear moaning coming from there, even though it was no longer being used. Another story tells the tale of one of the more violent patients of the hospital beating another patient to death with a rock under a grove of trees in the 1940s, and it is said that people will often hear the cries and moans of the victim in that area. Oh, that's brutal. Yeah. There's a lot of ways to die that are really terrible, and all of them happened at this place, (laughs) basically. The patient dormitories also have their own fair share of stories. Maintenance workers often hear the cries and screams coming from the dorms, similar to what they say they would have heard when the patients lived there. And on the second floor of the women's dorm, people have allegedly seen a woman dressed in a bathrobe running down the hallway. Although both of the dormitories, the men's and the women's, have since been torn down. Mm Mm-hmm. So, you can't go there anymore. But people do say that when you go to those spots, you will often hear the sounds. Oh, yeah. which is what my next point is. <laughs> but this is not an uncommon story. There are several stories of entities in bathrobes seen running across the grounds as if they're trying to escape. And throughout the hospital's dormitory areas and rec halls, people will hear screams and moans. And that's pretty much the whole story that I have for you. It's, it's a short one, but it was creepy. Well... On a scale of paranormal, five to one, I'm actually going to give that one a five. And let me explain why. Okay. I'm so excited. What? Sorry, that was really loud, (laughs) (laughs) y'all. So first of all, it's not, not everything needs to be super well documented. And I know that the last story that we rated, I gave a lower rating, but that's just because that's me with cryptids. I'm harsh Mm -hmm. on cryptids. I know that about myself. That's a new cryptid. Yeah. But- First of all, I almost am inclined to believe things more when there's more auditory than visual descriptions of encounters. I could see that. Um, just because it seems to make more sense. And also, I was drawing, while you were talking about this, I was drawing a lot of parallels to when we talked about Nopaming to this. Yeah. Which makes sense. There was a lot of really tragic death, autopsies, tunnels underneath the ground, people not being properly cared for. 
kept in in these overcrowded situations with staff that were not always fully trained. And that's not to say every, anything bad against all of the staff. Right. There were but, a lot of notes, yeah, that the people, some people cared. Not I'm sure there were there. lots of people there that cared, but there were also people there that needed a job and probably weren't trained right. Mm-hmm. Either way, I could easily see myself buying into any of those situations if I were to visit this place. So for that, I give it a five on the para to normal scale. Okay, I think that means I average at about a four. You're in a four? Right. You're in a yeah. four? Okay. Mm-hmm. So we have a four and a three and a five and a four. We're rating pretty high this week. I'm rating yeah. pretty high, <laughs> even though it was so last minute, man. <laughs> I'm, that just makes me more proud of us. I know, right? 16 episodes in, we're getting pretty good. We're getting pretty good. Pretty good. Yep. I have a listener story for you. Ooh, I'm excited. This is actually a listener story from a return listener, Gina Gleason. I saw this one come through, but I did not read it. You know I love the Gina. Gina is amazing. Uh, First of all, I love how Gina addressed this to us. That's why I like it. (laughs) Hey, ladies and Alice. It's me again. (laughs) I legitimately discussed this issue with a friend about Miss Alice and how Uh I feel like it's a good thing and that she's watching out for me. Mm -hmm. But she was just like, okay, well, maybe be a little careful because maybe the more you talk about her, the more you might be conjuring her and her presence around you. Mm -hmm. Giving more body to it. And I'm like, you know, if that's the case, I'm just going to roll with it. If it starts getting concerning, then we'll figure something out. But we've already opened ourselves up to all of this with the podcast. And I've been saying for years that my sister is sensitive to this, I have friends sensitive to this, and I always want this stuff around and it never comes to me. Well, now it's come to me and I'm enjoying Miss Alice's presence in my life. Just going to embrace it? I'm going to embrace it. Embrace it. Hey, Alice. So, So Gina says, hey, ladies and Alice, it's me again. I have a story that I'm going to call Paranormal or Paranoid. (laughs) Ooh. Ooh. (laughs) A couple years ago, Kevin and I took a trip to the Stanley Hotel, which you talked about recently. If I recall correctly, Gina actually brought this up to me after you did your story because she was super psyched that you did the story too. She mentioned it in her listener story that we happened to read on that episode, even though you didn't know I was doing the Stanley Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Because she she went home to watch The Shining. (laughs) Uh, So Gina says, a couple of years ago, Kevin and I took a trip to the Stanley Hotel. We had been dating for about six months at that time, and it was our first real trip together. I'm a huge fan of The Shining, so I booked both of the tours that the Stanley offered, the historic tour and the ghost hunting tour. While sipping on our red rum lattes, we did all of the things you mentioned in your podcast. We did the dum-dum thing, nobody's lollipops moved. We went to the creepy tunnel, nobody felt anything or got any unusual photos. We went to the rooms in the concert hall basement that were said to be very active with the ghosts of Lucy and the touchy-feely old man. Mm -hmm. I even lingered in the rooms after everyone had exited, hoping that being alone would give me a better chance of experiencing anything. Still nothing. Until we came upon an open door in the hallway, the entrance to a utility room. A big burly man with no-nonsense attitude stepped into the room and emerged a moment later with all of his arm hairs standing on end. What is up with that room? He asked the guide. Intrigued, I entered the room myself. 
as I listened to the guide explain, oh, that room isn't part of the tour. That door is not supposed to be open. Crossing the threshold into the room, I immediately felt off balance and sick to my stomach. I had to step back out without exploring further because the nausea was too intense. The guide continued, I'm probably not supposed to talk about this, but one night an employee snuck into the concert hall to do some investigating, went into that room, and quit the next day. I don't know what's going on in that room, but the energy in there doesn't have anything to do with the hotel. It's possible that the land was used for a native burial before the hotel was built. Now curious himself, Kevin steps into the room and pursues completely unaffected because he's a typical stubborn skeptic. Uh. And with that, the guide locks up the room so the next group can't repeat our off-the-map exploration. (laughs) Please don't go into the utility closets. (laughs) (laughs) Somewhat disappointed with our lack of concrete ghost experience, we head back to our cabin-style motel and go to sleep. Now, it's important to note that the Estes Park is a really small and remote mountain town. It's one of those places where all the restaurants and shops are closed by 8 p.m., and the entire town becomes very dark and silent. Short of calls from the wild, this particular evening was foggy as well. Talk about setting the atmosphere for a horror story, am I right? Right? Seriously, though. (laughs) Despite the day's creepy vibes, I fall asleep without trouble. Then, in the middle of the night, I happen to wake up just in time to see Kevin walking out of the motel. Confused, I grab my phone to check the time. It's 3 a.m. What the fuck? (sighs) Maybe he went to get something from the car. Maybe he awoke realizing he left something valuable in there and didn't want the car to get broken into. Or his phone charger. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Or at least Mm -mm. it did until five minutes later when he hadn't returned to our room. Now wide awake and anxious with confusion and concern, I watched the minutes slowly tick away. Five minutes turned to ten. Ten became thirty. What? And then it dawned on me, holy shit, Kevin is possessed. (gasps) That's why he claimed not to feel anything in that room. Whatever was in there got him. Why else would he get up at 3 a.m. and disappear into the foggy dark night in the middle of fucking nowhere? Now my heart is really pounding and I want him to come back, but I also now need to figure out what the hell I'm going to do with him when he returns. Will he try to attack me? Do I need a weapon? I certainly don't keep any holy water on me. How does a person going about finding an exorcist anyway? Google, Craigslist, is there a Yelp page where I can read starred reviews before (laughs) making my selection? Nearly an hour after his departure, Kevin, if he's still Kevin, finally returns to the motel. I quietly sigh in relief as he walks through the front door and straight into the bathroom. I try to convince myself that everything is okay, everything is normal, there's still a chance that he's not possessed, but the bathroom is silent. No tinkles, no toots, no grunts, no sighs. What? Five minutes turn to ten, and still not a sound. What the fuck? A long trip to the bathroom isn't abnormal, but there's always a soundtrack accompanying it. What the hell is he doing in there? Ten minutes turn to twenty, thirty, forty. Complete silence. Oh my god, he really is possessed. My heart is pounding as I finally find the courage to call out to him, And cautiously, I inquired, Kevin, is everything okay? The door slowly creeps open and his head slides out, hovering only inches above the floor. Yeah, couldn't sleep. I'm just reading. I didn't want to disturb you. (laughs) What? Are you kidding me? Here I've been lying wide awake, trembling with pure anxious terror for two hours, all because he didn't want to disturb me. Great. Guess I'll just cancel the appointment for the exorcist. No biggie. 
Wait, why was he outside? Was he like reading? He in was his trying car to read outside, and then he got cold, so he came inside. Kevin, uh, he said. Oh, and then uh, Gina said at the bottom, disclaimer, I couldn't find any information to back up the guide's theory about Native burial ground, but there are accounts online of seeing apparitions of Native people on the property. Mm -hmm. There is no saying whether or not they actually have anything to do with the energy in that room. So she was throwing that out there. Okay, I love Kevin. Kevin's a great dude. I've met him a few times now, and I love that he's with my Gina. But, like, the fuck, man. Steve, when you listen to this... Always assume I'm going to wake up and always assume I'm going to assume the worst. Sean, if you ever listen to this, if you ever listen to this, because you don't listen that often. If you ever listen to this, let me sleep. I ain't going to (laughs) wake up if you get out of bed. I'm just being honest. I will not wake up if he gets out of bed. So you, you should be told I want to be left alone. And I want to be woken up because I will wake up on my own. I'll wake up. You won't be there. I'll assume the worst possession. Where do you find an exorcist? She brings up a lot of very good points. <laughs> I also don't carry holy water. I'd have to like fashion a cross with some pencils or something. <laughs> look look up some like spells or chants. I don't know. Something. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. I mean, you got at least you got a mild game plan in the back of your head. Yeah, it's there. It's there. I can I can figure this out. See, my first instinct was to like get a stake thinking vampire and I was like, "No, that is the incorrect weapon at this particular point in time." And I want to harm <laughs> Do not stab Steve. I want Steve in to the be chest unharmed. with a wooden stake, please. <laughs> I love you, but I've known that man too long. Please do not like try to slay I, him. That's all I, I ask. I won't. Unless he turns into a legit vampire and then, you know, it's not the same thing. You know, I saw... It could work out. It's fine. I saw Buffy. It could work Brittany's out. Brittany's got I, I a vampire kink. <laughs> Look, I'm just saying that they have potential. Okay. <laughs> I'm not just going to discount it. All right. I will trust your judgment. Because well, I don't trust my own. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Well, thank you, Gina, for the amazing story again. I love yeah. that. So good. Hilarious also. <laughs> well, if you would like to submit a listener story of your own, you can do so on our website, leftofskeptic.com, or you can email us, leftofskeptic at gmail.com. And, of course, don't forget to check out our social media on Facebook at Left of Skeptic Podcast, as well as Twitter and Instagram at Left of Skeptic. With that, I think I'm ready to go to bed. It has been a long week. And we're recording late today, by the way, guys. I'm not saying go to bed at 3. It's like almost 9. It's time for bed. Yeah. 10 o'clock is my hard and fast bedtime, and I haven't eaten dinner yet, so going to go do that. All right, well... I guess we'll talk soon. And thank you all for tuning in on another Spooky Wednesday. We love you. Spooky Wednesday. Love you. Okay. Okay, bye. Bye.